Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting September 24th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. And you live on planet Earth, or Earth 1.0, which means that you'll be interested in Earth 3.0, a new Scientific American offering. Mark Fischetti is the managing editor of Earth 3.0. We spoke in the Scientific American Library. Mark, what is uh, Scientific American Earth 3.0? Earth 3.0 is a new special newsstand issue of a uh, magazine from Scientific American, which is all about energy, the environment, sustainability of the planet. Why did we decide it was important enough to do this? Well, there's there's lots and lots of action now in the news virtually every day about global warming, pollution, uh, scarcity of natural resources, oil, energy sources. Uh, all of these things kind of fall under the bigger category of sustainability. And we felt that the issues are so pressing and long-term and really are informed by science primarily that uh, we needed to come out and address these topics in, in, a, in a, a special place. There's there's some stuff you would expect to see in here. I mean, you, you can't have an issue like this without a James Hansen article. Right, right. Uh, James Hansen, of course, the the NASA climatologist who's always in the news getting himself into hot water if you will um but there's uh there's also some some interesting uh other kind of features in here why don't we talk about um talk about the the idea of bringing farms right into urban areas in skyscrapers right yeah vertical farming uh is sort of the term that's growing <laughs> so to speak um the the idea is um there's so much energy and waste that goes into traditional farming, you know, out in Iowa. Let's just pick an example. Tons of fertilizer, lots of energy to drive diesel tractors and all that. And then the food, once it's grown, then has to be harvested by machines and then transported mostly by truck all over the country. So there's tremendous amounts of energy and emissions involved. Why not grow the food where the people are? Um, and the plan is to have skyscrapers perhaps 30 stories high and a full city block in footprint. And on each floor, you're growing crops either hydroponically, meaning in water, or aeroponically, hanging hanging in the air where there's mists with nutrients that um, allow the plants to grow. You can, Since you control the air conditions and the light conditions, you can grow crops all year round. So you've got four growing seasons instead of one. There's no transportation. The people are right there. Uh, the food is fresher for everyone. So it's really an interesting concept. It sounds nuts when you first hear about it. But if you start to think about it, it really uh, makes a lot of sense. And then you could sell, you could have your farm stand on the ground floor of the building. Farm stand on uh, on level one and restaurants on level two. <laughs> right. And then people from, you know, within a 10 block radius or whatever do their shopping for produce at, at that farm stand. Right, right. And you have them all across the city. And you know, it's, it's kind of funny. In a way, it's, it's a return to a tradition rather than, it looks very different, but it, it's rather than being this uh, radical new thing, it's a return to an old thing. Because when I was growing up, and I'm talking about into the 1980s, up in the Bronx, New York, there was a full working farm on the interior of a city block, six blocks from my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you wanted produce, that's where you went. You walked the six block in New, um, let me say it again, in New York City, <laughs> you walked up six blocks to the local farm 
and you know how city blocks are laid out. The whole interior, every what would ordinarily be everybody's backyard on a you know semi suburban street, it was a working farm, and right. the guys would be there every day. And if you wanted arugula, if you wanted lettuce, if you wanted uh, whatever tomatoes, you know, it came with dirt on them. Right. right. But uh, you know that's they they finally closed up about twenty five years ago. But you know, so this is sort of a return to that. Yeah. The the catch twenty two story in the uh, in the issue water versus energy because you need water to make your energy to to uh, harvest your energy and you need energy to move your water around right. and, and you know Clean somewhere it. there's there's a disequilibrium. Yeah, it's an interesting issue that I think people aren't aware of. There's there's a lot of talk about peak oil, peak energy, but really we're in a very similar situation with water. Um, it's it's increasingly in demand it's increasingly rare and it's becoming increasingly costly and the catch-22 is just as you said it takes lots of fresh water to produce energy and it takes lots of energy to produce clean uh, potable water and actually to clean used water so and a lot of the solutions for quote clean energy such as electric cars would actually impose a greater burden on fresh water because electric cars are basically running off of power provided by power plants, and power plants are amongst the largest consumers of water in the country. So more electric cars means less gasoline, but it means more water. And there's this really tightly bound interplay between the two of these resources, and I think people are focusing mostly on the energy and not on the water um, to its potential detriment. So that's what that piece is trying to, to get at. Why do power plants consume so much water? Mostly for cooling. cooling. Yeah. yeah. Or, well, nuclear power plants, yes, but even all, traditional. All yeah. 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 They all have turbines, you know, that to create electricity, which are just massive machines that get really hot. So there's tur- huge volumes of water for cooling and then you lose it to evaporation. And anytime you draw f- clean water out of a river to cool a power plant, then you have to treat that before you and, and actually let the water cool before you return it to the river. Um, right. People t- are not aware of that. And it's an interesting dynamic. There's a section uh, called Frontlines, which has a, a series of short, looks like opinion pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the other CO2 problem, which is the title of one of those Frontlines? Yeah, these are uh, commentaries by experts, really short, you know, one page, maybe two pages, right to the heart of an issue. The other, the quote, other carbon dioxide issue is um, the ocean. Everyone's concerned with more carbon dioxide in the air for global warming. But a lot of that, a large portion of the emissions of carbon dioxide get cycled through the ocean. The ocean absorbs it. And it's making ocean water more acidic. Uh, and even a slight change in the acidity of ocean water really impacts the entire ocean food chain. And some scientists, including the ones in this issue, are saying if we don't watch it, you could start to take out essentially the, a large segment of the microbial population, simple organisms in and this the ocean, be, and it would collapse the food chain in the ocean. I was going to ask, this would be bad? Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, I figured it was probably bad. Um, which brings me to a, a question that comes to mind. How do we talk about these issues without just being like a total downer? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you asked that question because we're really trying to focus on solutions. So the the... The Catch-22 piece about water and energy is looking at where are the major trade-offs and what do we have to do to be smarter about that. Um, the piece with James Hansen is um, where is that limit, that uh, sort of crossover point where carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can 
kind of take us on a runaway situation. And if once we know that point, then we, we're better informed about what we can do about it. The ocean acidification uh, commentary says, now that we know this is happening, here's the immediate steps we have to take to try to slow that down. Um, most of the articles in here are trying to either better inform us about an issue or give us uh, solutions to these issues. And you're exactly right. We hear a lot of complaining about what's going on. We need to try to solve it if, if we're going to change things. Now we need to be able to kind of, you know, read about it or deal with it without just glazing your eyes over because, oh, no, another doom and destruction yeah. story. But there's there's upbeat stuff in here, too. I know there's, you know, as you said, you, you know, you have to understand what the problem is before you can even attempt to try to figure out what to do about it. But there's also fun stuff. I mean, there's ecotourism that yeah. gets discussed in the issue. There's ecotourism. There's, uh, there's a couple of uh, sections about, um, one about being green, what you can do. Uh, there's buying green section. So it's cool products that are eco-friendly. So there's, there's some of that personal um, consumer information, which is always interesting and fun. Eco travel is uh, trips you can take that are either kind of in harmony with the environment or even in this issue, there's a, uh, some trips you can take to take part in, uh, research about, uh, environmental issues, which is, and, and still the, tr the trips are fun. So it's kind of cool to be doing something and be part of, uh, actual science while, while you're having fun on your vacation. These are Earthwatch expeditions. Like Earthwatch like things. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, there's a, a piece in the, uh, a short piece in the issue on a global seed vault. Mm. Which is just really an amazing thing. I mean, it, it's like out of a, out of a sci-fi movie, this thing. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's a cavernous, um, basement, if you want to think of it that way. Cavernous concrete and steel, um, uh, vault in, built into the, deep into a permanent glacier north of Norway, way up in the North Sea. Are we sure it's permanent? It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not an ice cap. Okay. <laughs> um, and it's this massive vault, tens of thousands of square feet. And the plan is to essentially store copies of all the seeds that are, that are stored in small seed banks and research labs all around the earth. So we would have a copy of every seed that we know we've got up in this vault in, in the Arctic, um, for safekeeping where because it's, because it's entombed, uh, in the ice, um, the temperature is really low. It's very stable. And that's, that's, the best conditions for keeping seeds for very long term so that, um, so that it, when the aliens come, <laughs> they can, can regrow the earth. Yes. You have an article by Stephen Solomon, uh, talking about former CIA director Woolsey noting that, uh, energy independence or, or energy dependence is a really a national security issue. And we had Tom Friedman. Mm -hmm. on the podcast back on September 9th talking about a similar thing. But, but uh, you know, he's a journalist. This guy was the director of the CIA. Right, right. And and he, interesting perspective from his point of view, which is even if you don't care about the earth <laughs> and all you care about is yourselves or the United States, uh, our dependence on oil, and not just foreign oil, but oil is a security issue uh, to the to the obvious uh Example is what's going on in the Middle East, but the less obvious example is we're so dependent on oil that if prices change in any drastic way, which we're all seeing right now, the, the entire national economy could be wrecked because it's so driven by oil. So here's it right. Here's a person, you know, a hawk in his back, in his past, 
um, steeped in government and who's really made a change and said, we got to get out of this situation. We can get out of this situation. He's got his plan, which he presents. Um, and we have to wake up that it's not just about saving the planet, which should be, and that's fine. But even if you don't care about that, there are huge issues involved with energy and environment. Unfortunately, it still is for the most part treated like a liberal conservative or democratic Republican issue, but it is way beyond that. It, you know, it is a national security issue, which we keep getting told should be above politics. Well, it should be. Right. Right. No, that's very true. Right. And he's a good, he's a good example of someone who's, ch- who's really changed his, uh, outlook. You know, there's a, another person, T. Boone Pickens is getting some press now, you know, traditional oil man all the way who's set, who's now investing heavily in wind farms and high voltage direct transmission to, uh, send energy that would be created by wind farms and solar farms, other uh, long distances to people with little losses. So, um, even the so-called traditionalists, if you want to use that term, are starting to really change their views on these issues. Pickens stands to make a lot of money no matter how well, our electricity is created, right. but that doesn't make him wrong about this. No, exactly. That's your, actually is a good point. You know, so Hansen, uh, uh, you know, Hansen's sort of the traditional climatologist view, but these guys like Woolsey, uh, say there's security reasons for all this. And T. Boone Pickens will say, hey, there's ways to make money for all this, which are all sort of positive motivations to do uh, what we, quote, should be doing anyway. It's Scientific American Earth 3.0 Solutions for Sustainable Progress. It's got the lovely photo of the Earth on the cover being strangled by a gasoline line. And uh, this goes on sale at newsstands. September 30th. September 30th, and the entire issue is also available on the website, and I see we have a special web, uh, special URL, www.siamearth3.com. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Steve. Siam's Larry Greenmeyer was at a conference last week at the University of Wisconsin-Madison on the interface between nanotechnology and biology. We spoke in his office. I asked him about the topics under discussion, other than that nano is very, very small. Yeah, that was where the conversation began. There were a series of workshops, and the, uh, in fact, the initial workshop was to try to give people a sense of what nanoscale is. For example, by the time I finish the sentence, your fingernails will have grown one nanometer. But that's interesting because um, I just came across a, uh, a figure uh, last week, just, you know, almost completely unrelated, but your fingernails also grow at about the same rate as the continents drift. So, so <laughs> stick that in your pipe. That's right. So now we know the uh, continents move in nanometers as well. There you go. So yeah, they, the other thing that was, that, that came up early on in the conference is that the word nanometer, the word nanotechnology is beginning to lose meaning because it's really just a, a measurement. It means to an end. It's not, it's not the fact that something is nanotechnology that's important. It's what it does. So when we talk about carbon nanotubes, uh, which people are, people say are 500 times stronger than steel and a thousand times more conductive than copper, it's not really important that they're the size of a virus or the same size as, or, you know, smaller than a, than a bacteria. Right. That's not what people are interested in right. them for. They're interested in them for these properties that emerge. Right. Right. For example, I had written a story a few months ago about a researcher who was looking at 
inserting carbon nanotubes into the knee uh, of people who had torn cartilage with the hope that the cartilage would grow around the carbon nanotube and be stronger than it was previously. There's a little bit of controversy behind that because it's not clear whether having the carbon nanotubes in your knee would wear over time and be be worse. But the point is that um, they were small enough for the cartilage to go around them. And, and anyway, that's the, that's the idea behind what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And some of this is necessary because everybody and his brother was using nanotech in their grant proposals, their, their uh, loan proposals at the bank, you know, because it had become very in vogue right. to say that you were developing nanotechnology without anybody really uh, necessarily being all that concerned about just what it would it mean they're working with really little things right. and that's going to change the world right yeah it be, sort of became a uh, buzzword but um i think that'll probably if if the conference was any indication people will stop using that word so much and talk about specifics and we'll see how long that takes and even even the word one of the reasons is that nanotech is getting a bad rap people are concerned about the impact that it'll have on people's health now, there's, there, are, there are going to be good impacts and bad impacts if, if, uh, if people continue to develop it. One of the concerns is that it could get in, if, if you get nanoparticles that are airborne, they can get into the lungs. Uh, there was a report that compared it to asbestos, although there was a lot of discussion at the conference that that report wasn't quite accurate. It, the way the report was, was done, they were, um, they were injecting asbestos and nanoparticles into the abdominal cavity of, of rats or, or mice. But that's obviously not where it goes. It goes in the lungs. Mm-hmm. So there was, there were some flaws to that, but it is a concern. I mean, you never know when something gets airborne, the impact that it could have on your lungs and especially something that small, uh, might not show up for a long time, but, uh, be ser- you know, a serious problem. Now on the other side, you've got, uh, hope that nanotech will help deliver drugs through the body. Um, you can attach pharmaceuticals to a, like say a gold nanoparticle, which is fairly neutral. And that would be able to deliver the medicine specifically, you know, to a specific location. Right. You have the, the gold is attached to a, uh, an antibody usually. Right. And then the medication is attached, the, the molecule of drug is attached to the gold on the other side. Right. And you wind up using the gold as this vehicle with the antibody to, to specifically deliver the drug. Right. Like a ferry boat. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's got good and bad, uh, you know, the, the potential is, is good and bad. I don't know how much credence we can put in the bad at this point. Was there anything that, in addition to the fingernail rate, <laughs> right. anything that, that really jumped out at you at the conference? Um, well, there was a, um, a 17 year old, uh, high school student who has been work, working research in one of the Wisconsin labs for the past three years. And, um, he co-founded a company called, uh, Graphene Solutions. <laughs> and, um, he and his, uh, his mentor are studying the different uses of, of, uh, carbon nanotubes. One of the things that he brought up that I thought was interesting is that, Carbon nanotubes, when they're, when they're created, generally clump together. Right. So one of the important things, uh, that they're working on is, uh, the ability to remove them from clumps so that they can, they can actually be used. Uh, because right, cause if you have a single carbon nanotube, you have these really interesting electronic properties right. and, and, uh, tensile strength properties. Right. 
Right, but, but if, if they're all clumped together, you have soot. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The the world record for the length of a carbon nanotube right now stands at about what? Well, what I was told was that it's about a, a centimeter and a half. <laughs> okay. So there's there's talk of of nanotubes being created using to create larger structures such as a, a cable that could support a bridge, but with uh, an incredibly lightweight bridge supporting cable absolutely right? right and but with a one and a half centimeters today we're going to have to probably wait for that for a little some bit some ways to go but uh the the world record for the length of a nanotube probably 10 years ago was orders of magnitude smaller so maybe there will be some significant progress on that front you know in the, in the coming years but uh, it's it's a fascinating potential substance it does all these really amazing things you know as you said stronger than steel but with really interesting electronic properties you know s- tiny little switches for right. circuits it's really it's really quite uh quite extraordinary what the what the potential for the thing is in the meantime people are calling you know carbon nanotube uh applications things that are just well we're spraying paint in a very fine aerosol mist right and it's, so it's not real but right but there, it could be sometimes soon right you bring up a good point about nanotech i mean people say that there are nanoparticles in in cosmetics right. or, or suntan lotion which is technically true they're that they're that on that scale of size but they're not doing the kinds of things that some of the more innovative uh ideas would have uh, nanotech do right i mean a molecule of water you're, you're talking about right. nano right. sized particles but that's not what we hope to get out of uh investment in nanotech yeah we'll hope we can do more better than uh, cosmetics and uh, suntan lotion Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, in the first days of operation, the Large Hadron Collider found the elusive Higgs boson. Story two, the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals has recommended that Ben and Jerry's discontinue using cow's milk in ice cream and replace it with human breast milk. Story three, the Environmental Protection Agency has decided against limiting the levels of a rocket fuel ingredient that can be found in drinking water. And story four, the Amish are using solar energy. Time's up. Story four is true. The Amish are using solar energy, and I'm not talking about letting sunlight grow their corn. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that many Amish families have installed solar panels to charge batteries for home use. Plugging into the grid would violate their religious practice, but using the sun to power some devices for some purposes is acceptable. One solar products company was getting 80% of its business from the Amish. With rising oil prices, non-Amish are increasingly turning to solar, and the company expects 60% of its sales to go to non-Amish next year. Story three is true. The EPA has decided not to put a limit on acceptable levels of a rocket fuel ingredient in water. That's according to a draft of a regulatory document that the Associated Press reviewed. The particular toxic ingredient, perchlorate, can cause developmental risks for fetuses. 
So you can apparently be both against abortion and against healthy fetal development. Story two is true. PETA does want Ben and Jerry's to use human breast milk in ice cream. PETA claims that a Swiss restaurateur is going to be using human milk for cooking, and it was such a good idea that B&J might go for it. But a Ben and Jerry's spokesman, apparently turning down the suggestion, said, We applaud PETA's novel approach to bringing attention to an issue, but we believe a mother's milk is best used for her child. All of which means that story one about the Large Hadron Collider finding the Higgs boson is totally bogus. Because what is true is that the Large Hadron Collider went online and, well, let's let Siam's George Musser explain. George, on our last episode, we talked about the wonders of the new Large Hadron Collider. This week, we'll very briefly talk about why it's broken. Well, it's still a wonderful instrument, isn't it? An amazing machine, and they all have problems when they start up. So, yeah, it's kind of a letdown, but they'll get it going. So what is actually wrong with the LHC? I mean, it, it, they never even tried yet to actually collide particles with each other. No, no, they're just at the stage where they're trying to control the beam of particles that is circulating within the within the collider right because if you can't control the beam you can't smash two beams together you have to you know ghostbusters notwithstanding the idea here is to cross the beams exactly and you can't do that unless you know exactly where the beam's going to exactly. be so in their original attempts to control the beam some problems cropped up and what what's going on there well there are a couple problems happened the day of commissioning the day that everyone had a big party for the startup of the collider there was a problem actually with the transformer, one of the power transformers that led to a couple degree temperature rise. And they had to replace that power transformer and cool the thing back down. But that was a pretty minor glitch, actually. And then last Friday, I got an email in my box. It's an incident in Sector 34. That's a great name for a movie. And I was just thinking, God, that sounds like a novel. Maybe I'll write that novel. But unfortunately, it was a terse and somewhat sober email about a much more serious problem which was the detection of a helium leak within the tunnel when i actually visited the collider last year we had to carry emergency breathing apparatus with us into the tunnel just in case we were down there when they had a helium leak right because you can't breathe helium and uh, you'll suffocate exactly suffocate like this but you will suffocate yeah it'll be funny for a while but (laughs) for a while short while so they detected the leak they attribute the leak to the, some kind of electrical connection that melted. But the bottom line is they have to raise that area of the, the collider back up to room temperature so they can fix said electrical connection, uh-huh. cool it back down. It takes weeks to do that. They'll run into the shutdown that has to happen over the winter because of the energy prices. Right. We so, spoke about that on the last episode. Exactly. Your winter choices are either run the collider, or keep Geneva livable. Exactly. So I think Geneva takes priority in this case, and they'll start the collider up now in the springtime. Okay. And and in the grand scheme of things, is this a minor glitch, major glitch, medium glitch, catastrophe, or just, you know, price of doing business, you expect it? It's teething pains. I mean, it's not pleasant. They all wish... We all wish that they had started the collisions now, yesterday. But, you know, they've been designing the thing for over a decade. 
a couple months here, a couple months there. I mean, I guess it hurts the students who are really depending on the Collider for their PhD um, data mm-hmm. for their theses. So they have to spend another six months in graduate school. But as we all know, another six months in graduate school is par for the course. And that's like another another week. It's exactly you know, a week, six months. All right. So, uh, you know, the Higgs boson, you have a reprieve. You're on the loose for another six months or so. <laughs> right. Dark matter. Until we track you down. Supersymmetry. Well, just, it's hidden yet more, a few more months. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, videos, and blogs. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.